I want to thank uh, uh, Kainoa for teaching last week and for Rudy leading worship and everybody that participated. We had a wonderful time up north in Idaho with the kids and family and washed a lot of dishes at the bakery. You know how I love to wash dishes. Well, man, I was like in heaven. They just kept on throwing dishes in the sink and I was trying to keep up. It was fun, but another year. Can you believe it? It's hard, hard to believe sometimes. A lot of times things go under the, the bridge and we, we forget that, wow, it's been a year. Um, one thing I'd ask you to pray about as a church as we embark on this new year, um, there's an opportunity <clears throat> for our radio ministry to go uh, dated uh, Monday through Friday um, in the mornings. Uh, the, the, the program uh, from Pastor Howard is going to be going off the air and that, that spot opened up. Um, and so we're, we're praying about that. It's going to end up costing, I think, I haven't talked to them yet, but roughly um, there's a certain amount they have. It's pretty reasonable. And so we're going to be looking at that and be praying for that, be praying that God would provide and uh, that God would not only provide the, the listeners to support this, we don't want to burden the church with this, but at the same time you can partake in that as well. And so just be praying about that as we move forward with that and talking to them and seeing when actually that will take place. But this morning we're back in John. <laughs> it seems we've only been gone a couple weeks, but it, it seems like forever in my mind. And, and so I want to spend a little time looking at our next section here. Uh, so far we've been able to wait, make our way through the introduction to John's gospel, the epilogue it's called, and we've been focusing on verses 1 to 18 and and we got through that, and we talked about the relationship, um, uh, to, uh, the relationship of Christ to God and all things, His reason for coming into the world. We looked at that, and then we also talked about His revelation of God. And just before Christmas, if you recall, we moved on from that introduction to the book into the life and ministry of John the Baptist, and. Uh, Ken taught a message on this previously, and so we didn't go into a whole lot of detail, but we're looking mainly at the section verses 19 through 34, and this is where it really told us two things about John the Baptist. It said, first of all, that he was, he was the one who prepared the way for the Lord in verses 19 to 28, and we looked at that in depth. He dealt with the, the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem who were sent to confront him. Um, he denied continuously that he was the Messiah or that he was Elijah or, or a prophet even. And um, he also described himself as a voice crying out in the wilderness, you remember that. And uh, it was kind of an odd way that he did this. Uh, he wasn't real user-friendly. Pretty much it was, you know, repent behold the kingdom of god is at hand and and that kind of a, a, a message and so he prepared the way for the lord and and remember it was 400 years from the time they heard anything from god god's people and so they were really set up to hear this incredible message of the proclamation of the gospel from john the baptist finally god was once again speaking to them as his people and uh he, he did it through John the Baptist. And then 
you notice the second thing we said not only did he prepare the way of the lord but we also just in remembrance he proclaimed the true identity of christ and we saw that in verses 29 to 34 and he emphasized five things about our lord he he emphasized in verse 29 his payment for our sin and we talked about that in depth and and it's very apt that we talk about that um, remember that even this morning as we just celebrated communion and we notice that in verse 29, notice he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin, not sins, sin. And we talked about what that actually meant. It's singular, it's not plural. And then the second thing we said that he proclaimed the identity of Christ. He, he proclaimed his preeminence and his preexistence. We saw that in verse 30. He says, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he is before me. He was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And so he, he talks about the preexistence, the, the, the preeminence of Christ, that he was greater than all. And then in verse 32, he talked about the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 33, he talked about his purpose for ministry, which was basically to bring people to the Lord. And then the last thing we looked at was his person. He mentioned the Son of God. That, that phrase is mentioned ten times throughout John. And so this morning we're going to continue in this series, and we're beginning um, this transition from the, the, the really the, the ministry of John the Baptist now into what? Into the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And so it's a transition time here in the end of chapter 1. And he's really, he, he, he wants to show us how this transition from John the Baptist to the ministry of Christ. And so we see here in our text this morning, verses 35 uh, down through the end of the chapter, basically the calling, Jesus is calling his disciples. And so we want to... Uh, Look at this this morning, and basically on the subject of Jesus, our all-sufficient Savior. And because we had communion and the time, we're just going to introduce this today. So we're not going to work our way through all these verses. We're just going to introduce it in a general sense. But we're going to talk about the idea that Jesus is our all-sufficient Savior. He's all that we need. We don't need to add anything to that. Uh, and so... If you would stand in honor of God's word as we begin reading in verse 35 of John chapter 1, I'm just going to read through the entire rest of the chapter. Uh, we're not going to do all this this morning, but I just want you to get it in its context. And he starts off talking about how Jesus calls his first disciples. And you'll notice a couple things. It's kind of broken up by days. It says the next day, the next day. And there's four groups here of people that are following Christ, and we'll look at those next week. But verse 35, it says, The next day again John was standing with his two disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. 
One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus. One of the one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Verse 41, and he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Father, we thank you for this text that we just read. May we understand why people follow you in the Bible and I pray, too, that we will follow you as we read about who you truly are. Help us, Lord, to see that you're the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the King of Israel. May we put our complete trust, our complete faith in you and follow you all the days of our remaining time here on earth. Lord, if there's any here this morning who are listening to this message who have not yet trusted in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as their only hope, as their only source of forgiveness for sin, as the only answer to the issues and the problems that we face here in this life, may they sense the drawing of your Spirit to turn from their own way, to turn from their own efforts, to turn from their sin to the Savior. May they repent from seeking their own way their own answers to the problems of life, and turn and trust in your Son and his sacrifice on Calvary for the complete and thorough cleansing that you bring and you offer. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're coming in this section, and as I said, it's a transition into the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this will serve just as an introduction to this text. But I want to pose a question. Why did these men, these four groups of men here, why did they follow Jesus? Why does anybody follow Jesus? In the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at this. But there's actually four cases here of men who followed Christ. First of all, in verses 35 to 39, and I'm just going to break it down for you. And we'll save this for next week. But in the case of Andrew and John, John's not mentioned there. He's never mentions himself. 
in his own text, but he was there. And it was the conviction of, of really John the Baptist that caught their attention. And then you had the case of Simon Peter in verses 40 to 42. And there it was the claim of his brother Andrew. And in the third case, the case of Philip, it was really the, the challenge of Jesus himself. Jesus just confronted him wholeheartedly and said, follow me, verse 43 and 44. And then lastly, you have the case of Nathaniel. And really, it was, it was Jesus' character in verses 45 to 51. See, God's going to use people who proclaim the gospel with conviction. John the Baptist did this. All these men did this. And God's going to use people like that. He's going to use people who understand, who believe that Jesus is our all-sufficient Savior. He's going to use them to touch the lives of other people. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he said, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness, some translations say to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Think about those two contrasts. One thinks it's foolishness, just complete folly. The other, whose lives are affected by it, believe that it is the power of God. Also, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, he said this, but we preach Christ crucified. And then he says this, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, doesn't matter what your religious background is, if God saves you, he says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Once again, notice the contrast. Those who think it's foolishness have not been affected by the gospel. Those who have been saved by the gospel realize it's the wisdom of God, realize it's the power of God. And that's why we preach Christ crucified. We don't preach a Jesus that's just going to make you happy and healthy and whole and all those things. We preach a, a, a Jesus that says, you know what, I died for you. And I gloriously was risen on the third day. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he said this, for I decided to know nothing among you except, think of this, this is an exception clause. In other words, if I could tell you anything, this is the only thing I want to tell you. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that interesting? How many times do we say we're sharing the gospel when really what we're doing is we're just telling other people how to live their lives? Well, you need to do this, you need to do that. You shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that. Paul says, no. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the power that leads people to follow Jesus Christ. He also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and also in verse 4, listen, he says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, he's talking about coming to the Corinthians and preaching, he says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. What's he saying? He's like, look, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm just a messenger. Don't look at me. Look at Christ. It's interesting that John the Baptist said the same thing. Right? Hey, I'm not the one. 
Don't point your finger at me. There's one that's coming after me that's greater than I. In verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 2, he says, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But, contrast, in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I want to ask you this morning, where does your faith rest? Does it rest in your own wisdom? Do you think you got this all figured out? (laughs) Or is it resting in the power of God? Because you wholeheartedly believe the message of the gospel. And if you wholeheartedly believe the message of the gospel, this is what he's talking about, or he's talking about the cross. If you wholeheartedly believe that, then your faith should be evident of that. What was John's message? He tells us there in the text, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. See, when you want people to come to Christ, when you want people to be saved, to be transformed by Christ and by the Savior, you don't have to tell them about your lifestyle. You don't have to be all that, oh, I don't do this, I don't do that. I mean, that may be important, That may be evidence that there's a demonstration that somehow God transformed you. You know, I I used to do drugs and now I don't do drugs. Or I used to be into this and now I'm not. That's that's fine. But that's not going to save anybody. This is what, what he wants us to understand. When you want people to come to Christ, you don't have to tell them about your lifestyle. That's not what draws them to people. A lot of times it may repel them, to be, honest, to be honest with you. What draws people to Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's the message that people need to hear. We preach Christ and what? Him crucified. Him risen. We don't preach ourselves. That's an empty gospel. We preach the Lord. And this was the conviction of John the Baptist. He didn't preach himself. He wasn't holding big tent meetings out there saying, oh, look at me and follow me. No. He had followers. But you notice, even in our text, when those followers of John the Baptist heard him say, oh, there's, behold, the Lamb of God, what did they do? They left John the Baptist and they followed Christ. See, our church suffers horrifically today and I mean church in general, our churches, I should say, the church, the universal church, suffers horrifically from what I would, I would, I would you know, just call personality cult worship. You know, you put these people up on a pedestal, and because they're good-looking and they speak well, and they got, you know, church members coming out their ears, well, they must be successful. And people follow the men, or the man, rather than the Savior. And we have to Be aware of this. We don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ. I don't know if you ever saw this movie, but I'll give you kind of a small recreate. It's kind of a corny movie. I think it was done back in 1967. It's called The Gospel Blimp. You ever seen it? It's online. You can go online on Vimeo. or Just type in The Gospel Blimp. You've got to watch this movie. It's very corny, so just be patient with it. But it's, a, it's a kind of a, almost a hilarious satire of some very well-meaning, misguided Christians 
kind of back in the 40s and 50s, maybe, I don't know, 50s probably, who want to share the gospel with their neighbors. This is the, the whole thing. It's kind of an evangelistic movie for Christians. And they get together, and they're in their backyard kind of having a, just a party, and across the bushes is their two neighbors, the husband and wife, and they're sitting there drinking their beer. And this group, about eight wives and husbands, are sitting over there. Oh, look at them. That's, we, we've, they really need to come to know the Lord. Oh, they're drinking that alcohol. You're just very condescending, very self-righteous. And right about then, this blimp flies overhead. And they're all like, whoa, look at that. That's a blimp. That's so cool, you know. And they're all looking up, and the neighbors are even looking up a little bit. And so they, they, they get into this, this, this fixation on this blimp, and they realize that, you know what? We could use a blimp like that to spread the gospel. And these are all Christian businessmen, probably successful in their own, in their own way. And so they raise the money. And they get the idea that they want to preach the gospel to the entire city. And so they actually go out and they raise money. And they start getting funds. And they actually buy property. And they have a groundbreaking ceremony. And they build a blimp center. And they buy a blimp. And they have a corporation now. And there's one part of the, the movie, the guy's painting the, the sign on the front of the company and, you know, it says, the gospel blimp. And then one of the guys goes, well, I think we need to be incorporated in case something happens so we're, we're covered as businessmen. And then they put ink on the end, you know. It's just very weird. But you've got to watch this movie. Because they raise all this money, and the whole operation requires a corporation, a board of directors, an office. And the guy who came up with the idea, he kind of plans to quit his own job and go full-time with the company, They call it the Gospel Blimp Incorporated. And then they realize, well, we can't put a a ceiling on this, so now it's the International Gospel Blimp Incorporated company. And so the whole thing, and eventually they hire a a PR agent to help this guy who's working full-time for the Blimp company with his image. And um, he he promotes his image by making him the commander, and he dresses him up in this weird military uniform. And so, you know, this will give you status, you know. And, and the whole thing is, you know, focused around this, this individual, and it shows how he has to neglect his, his family on the weekends to play golf with these important contacts that the PR guy has lined up. And, they, you know, the cause is, is worth it. And so his family hardly sees him anymore. And they finally get this blimp airborne, and they come up with the idea of having these tracks. Uh, Michael, you'd like this idea. They, they take tracks and they wrap them in red cellophane. And they call them firebombs. And so the, as the commander's up there, they had to hire a pilot because he didn't know how to fly a blimp. And they get up there and they're dumping baskets of these things over the city. And at first, you know, the kids, oh, wow, this is cool. They thought maybe there was candy in it or something. That would be kind of ingenious. But there wasn't. It was just a silly gospel track in their mind. And so they do this for a period of time, and at first the people were kind of intrigued by it, but then they started getting annoyed. Because every morning they go out, and there's all these stupid cellophane wrappers all over their lawn, like leaves, and they got to pick them up. And they started kind of irritating you know, the, the, the community, and it says, we knew the, the, the persecution was going to come. <laughs> you know, and it was just, it's, it's all focused around this. And the people get annoyed, having their yards littered with these droppings from the sky, and then they, they come up with an idea, well, let's put a PA system on this blimp. 
And so they do. They put this you know, high-powered PA system and they play um, joy, 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 joy down in our heart by the Sunday school kids, which was just totally irritating the people. They're like, no, stop, you know, these messy. And they're thinking all the while they're reaching these people for Christ. And one guy decides to leave the board, the guy whose house uh, the meeting was at the very first time when they saw the blimp. He leaves the, the board because he, he found out the commander gave some false information. They had a mishap with the blimp, and he said, oh, I was out of town. He wasn't, and so he lied. So this guy, I'm, I'm not going to be part of this anymore. So he steps down. So the rest of the board members are praying for his salvation because he stepped down from the board of the, the gospel blimp company. Well, in his spare time, they see him talking to his two neighbors, who the two people who were drinking the beers at the beginning. And he actually sees him getting into the car and going to the beach with one of them, the husband. And, it, and it's so funny because they're sitting there and they're going, you know, we're not sure, but we know there was beer in that cooler. We really need to pray for our brother because he's gone so far away from the company now. And it's so focused on this, this company. And the message of that movie, really, at the, end, at the end of the movie, I'll just spoil it for you, this guy and his wife lead his neighbors to Christ. And so they have a meeting back at his house, and they're telling him. The neighbor's telling him, yeah, we came to Christ. Oh, that blimp, it must have been the blimp. And it's like, it had nothing to do with the blimp. <laughs> you know, it was finally these folks who had time for us, because before they were too busy with the blimp company. You know, we invited them over for dinner. They could never come. They were always going to a prayer meeting. They were always doing this. And the whole message of the gospel, of the message of that movie, basically, is that the best way to share the gospel with your neighbors with your family, even with your friends, is to befriend them. Don't get caught up in the aspects of, you know, evangelism and, and all this stuff. Just, just be real to people. Be real to people and share the true message that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior that everyone needs. So your homework assignment for this week is to watch the Gospel Blimp. It's free, go online. I'm sure you'll come back totally renewed. But it is a very timely message for the church today. So John here points out two of his disciples, Andrew and John. And he points them to Jesus as the Lamb of God in verses 35 to 30, uh, 36 there. And they followed Jesus, and Andrew finds his brother. You see how this is connected by people. And then Jesus finds Philip, and then Philip quickly finds Nathaniel. And, and I just want to say that you know, we should be focused on the first point here is that Jesus is the only Savior that everyone needs. They don't need a church. They don't need a prayer meeting. They don't need a Bible reading. They need a Savior. Now, all those things are good. Okay, all those things may play and, and be part of someone coming to Christ. But the Gospel of John is all about who Jesus is. And the first chapter gets a running start in telling us in John 1, 1 that we have, what we have seen here is that he is the eternal word who was in the beginning with God and who was God. Don't forget the message of John. In verse 4 he says, Jesus has life in him and, the life, and that life is the light of men. In verse 9 he said, he is the true light that enlightens every man. 
In other words, you can't be enlightened unless you come through Christ. Verse 12 says, He gives to all that believe in Him the right to become children of God. These are all things that are funneled through Christ, our all-sufficient Savior. Verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, glorious as the only begotten or unique Son of the Father. He says He's full of grace and truth. He is greater than John the Baptist who testified of Him. He's greater than Moses and the law. He's the only begotten God who explains the Father to us, verse 18. Verse 23 says he is the Lord. Verse 29 says he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 33 says he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 34 says he is the Son of God. The chosen one of God, you could say. And our text repeats some of these examples bringing out 12 truths about who Jesus is. And shows us here these men who meet Jesus and they follow him. And we'll go get into them next week. But remember, the overall message of John's gospel, does anybody remember where it's found? Chapter 20, verse 31. The only reason he's writing this is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of the whole book. If you had to summarize the whole gospel, just go to verse 31 of chapter 20. Well, let's look at a couple of these titles. We just have a few moments here. But we'll look at some of these titles that we see in our text in verse 35. Now, I'm going to be jumping through these, so remember, we're going to go through this next week more thoroughly. But the first one there is Jesus is the Lamb of God. He says, the next day again, John was standing with his two disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. John has mentioned, he'll continue to mention this sequence of days. It continually says the next day, the next day. Some have suggested John 1.1 begins the same way as Genesis 1.1 begins in the beginning and john is outlining kind of a new creation that centers in christ as you're saved you're a new creation in christ Um, it's also been pointed out that the sequence of days in this text in verses 19 through verse 1 of chapter 2 parallels to some degree the last week of jesus's life See, at the very least, it it conveys a vivid recollection of what's going on here, of the eyewitnesses who remembered this life-changing week when he and some of the others who eventually became Jesus' apostles met the Savior. I mean, think back when you met the Savior. I'm sure you can remember. I pray you can remember. Maybe it's not a specific day. Maybe it's a period of time. You don't have to know the date and the time necessarily. But for most of us, there is a date and a time. We can remember exactly when the Lord saved us and the freedom we felt and the burden that was taken off our shoulders. And so here are these men, they're coming to Christ. And in verse 29... John first says, there behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We saw that it focuses on Jesus as the supreme and final sacrifice for sinners. All the Old Testament prophets, 
All the Old Testament sacrifices, excuse me, pointed toward this one sacrifice. Now, whether or not Andrew and John weren't present then, we don't know. But he brings it up again here in our text. He says again, the next day, he says the same thing. Behold the Lamb of God. He wants them to know. He is the Lamb of God. Secondly, Jesus is the teacher. He's the teacher. In verses 38 and 49, it says, Jesus turned and he saw them and following and said to them, I like this, what are you seeking? In other words, what do you want? What do you want? Why are you following me? Think about it. If someone was following you, wouldn't you turn around and go, what do you want? Or you'd start walking a little faster, maybe in our society today, if someone was following you, especially if it was night and it was dark in an alley, whatever. And they said, Rabbi or Rabbi, however you want to pronounce it, Rabbi is the, the way it's pronounced in the Greek, which means teacher, where are you staying? Isn't that interesting? That was what was on their heart. Where are you staying, Jesus? <laughs> or verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. They addressed him as a teacher. That's what that word means. Rabbi was really a, an honorary title that students would use. It's like calling your teacher professor. Okay, it's very dignified. Even the Pharisee, uh, the Nicodemus even, addressed Jesus as rabbi. I mean, Jesus, I think we would agree, is a teacher par excellence, right? I mean, the way he taught was amazing. In John 13, Jesus addresses this, because they were always calling him teacher. In John 13, verse 13 to 14, he says, you call me teacher and Lord, you are right, for so I am. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Wow. What an interesting message to those who consider themselves teachers or rabbis back then. That was not something they would do, the religious elite. They wouldn't wash anybody's feet. That was for the servant to do. See, we should all be students of his teaching and his example. Thirdly, we see here in verse 41, Jesus is the Messiah, it says he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. John translates the term for us. That's what it means, Messiah. It's used only here and in verse 25 of chapter 4 in the New Testament. And it means anointed one in Hebrew. In Greek, the anointed one is Christ. In the Old Testament, an anointed one is used of the king of Israel, the high priest, or of the patriarchs. In Daniel, it refers to the Messiah, the prince, in the prophecy there of 70 weeks in Daniel. It's a title for the one prophesied of in the Old Testament who would be supremely God's anointed prophet, priest, and king, all wrapped up in one. This is Christ. Fourthly, you need to understand Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he's the authoritative Lord. And guess what? He changes people for his sovereign purposes. Look at what he says in verse 42 of chapter 1. John, he brought him to Jesus 
Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So he finds his brother, Simon, and he brings him to Jesus. And then Jesus immediately changes his name. Cephas, John translated once again for his Greek leaders, comes from the Aramaic word, Aramaic word for rock or stone. And Peter is the, the Greek word for rock. But John's focus here is not so much on the meaning of the name, but rather on Jesus' authority over people and his power really to change them into what he wants them to be so that he can use them for his own sovereign purposes. Most of us, when we came to Christ, we were living our life. We were, had a certain direction. We had a certain agenda. And then Jesus saved us transformed us all of a sudden what happens to our plans they don't matter anymore it's like god what what do you want me to do that's the pressing point here it would be rather unnerving to meet a man only to have the first words <laughs> come out of his mouth think if you just meet a total stranger you meet him and they come up and they say what's your name steve well you know what now you're going to be called bud what? <laughs> Who do you think you are? See, our name is what? Our name is our identity. It's what we respond to. It's who we are. And notice he didn't ask Simon. Jesus didn't go up to Simon and go, hey, would it be okay if I... You know, Simon said, not really where... I'm not feeling you as a Simon. I, I think it's better, Stephen. I'm going to call you Pete. He didn't ask him. He didn't suggest... Maybe this is a possibility you could change. Think about it for a while. Get back to me and, and we'll, we'll maybe it'll grow on you. Rather, he just boldly, our Lord just boldly declares this authoritative statement. You are Simon and now you're going to be called Peter. Period. Doesn't ask for permission. Doesn't ask anything. Why? Because he's a sovereign Lord. God doesn't need permission to change you. He doesn't. Sometimes we think he does. He doesn't. He's sovereign. He has that kind of authority over us. And sometimes when we're not listening to him and we're doing our own thing and he's trying to change us and we're not responding, he says, okay, you want to play hardball? I'll play hardball. So he creates things in our life that force change upon us, which is not comfortable. It's not fun. But he's the Lord, and that's what he does. And he does it not to make us suffer. He does it because he loves us. He cares for us. He says, I want you to be more like me. You're not cooperating, so I'm going to have to force the issue here a little bit. The fifth thing, not only is he sovereign Lord, it says in Verse 45, that Jesus is he of whom the Old Testament speaks. We found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. Wow. We've been waiting for this guy forever. 400 years of silence and now he's here. This is amazing. See, the law and the prophets is a, is a common term really to refer to the Old Testament. And do you know that there are over 300 prophecies? Over 300. Many types 
of prophecies in the Old Testament that point to Christ. Over and over and over again, they're pointing to Christ. And these guys knew their Old Testament. So finally, they're looking at Jesus and they're going, wow, it all lines up. This is the one. This is the one whom they spoke about. Well, sixthly here, Jesus is of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, verse 45. Notice what it says. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. John, a lot of times in his writing here in the gospel, uses irony. And this is probably an instance of it. Actually, Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem. And guess what? He wasn't the biological son of Joseph. He grew up in Nazareth, and he was the supposed son of Joseph. Luke 3, 23 tells us. It was probably rumored that Jesus was born in fornication by the public. But Philip's description of Jesus brings out what? He brings out his humanity. He was a man who came from this small town in Galilee, raised by Joseph, who was a carpenter who was married to Mary. John Calvin, in his commentary, says this. He says, he points out that although Philip erroneously thought that Jesus was a native of Nazareth and the son of Joseph, he led Nathanael to the Son of God who was born in Bethlehem. See, sometimes in our lives, God overrules our inaccurate facts, our inaccurate witnesses to bring people to the truth about Jesus. He just overrules it. Well, the seventh thing here I see is Jesus is the omniscient one. Look at verses 47 and 48. He knows each person. This is the thing here where, verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael, shocked, said to him, How do you know me? I mean, think about it. If you met a complete stranger and they come up to you and told you something very, very intimate that only very few people knew. That would be a little unnerving. And he tells Philip, verse 48, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. He sees everything. I mean, we think we hide stuff from God. You know, we... We live in ways sometimes that may are not honoring to him, and we think, well, we're not hurting anybody, and nobody sees us. No, God sees. God sees. And I think we need to live with that in our minds. I'm reminded of that. The, uh, it was, uh, I forget the guy's name, but he was at John MacArthur's church, a youth pastor, college pastor, and a young couple came in, they were dating, and they'd gone too far intimately in the relationship and they're sitting in his office and they confess the whole thing which was a good thing to do and then he says well i'm glad you told me because someone saw you and they were mortified what do you mean someone saw us oh yeah someone saw you and finally he to calm their nerves a little bit he thought he he said well christ saw you god saw you and they were relieved. They were like, oh, oh, we thought you meant somebody saw us. It's like, no, someone saw you. See, we need to kind of remember that. That when we go to places that we shouldn't be going, guess who's going with us if we're a believer? Christ. 
And even if we're not a Christian, he sees it. We're not hiding anything from God. So he had been sitting under this fig tree, meditating on the story of maybe Genesis 28 about Jacob's ladder. And Jesus had this supernatural knowledge of Nathanael's character and his private activity and private activity, and he declares it to him there. He just he was blown away by this, and he says, Rabbi, or Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. See, Jesus has a way of really unmasking us because of his omniscience. He looks deep into our souls to reveal who we really are. See, we may be fooling everybody in the church. We're not fooling God. You can come here and sit here and smile and sing the songs and read the Bible, do whatever you want, but God knows what's really going on in your spiritual life. God knows if you really know him or not, or you just play acting. And he later reveals that he knew what Thomas had said privately to the other disciples in chapter 20, verses 25 to 27. Put your hand in my side. He already knew their conversation. See, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, 13, it says, For the word of God is living, is active, is sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge, listen, the thoughts, and guess what? The intentions of the heart. See, we can't judge somebody's intentions. We, we think we can. Oh, they're just being nice, nice to me because they want something. Or, oh, they're just, you know. We don't know people's motivation. You, you're not God. We don't know what's really going on in someone's heart. They could be totally schmoozing you or they could be completely sincere. And you would never know. It says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Jesus, the Word of God, knows all about you. So it's pointless to try to hide from Him. The good news, and this truly is good news, I mean, you could be a vile wretch, but you know what? The good news is that He loves you in spite of knowing all about you. He extends His hand of love to you. He's saying, I sacrifice so you don't have to. He wants to change us for the good. He doesn't want to harm us. He doesn't want to spoil the party here, here on earth. He wants to make the party better and more, uh, a more uh, better quality party, you could say, that would have results lasting into all of eternity. So he's... Omniscient. He knows all about us. Eighthly, Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 49, he answers, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. This is a messianic title in the Old Testament. Israel is God's Son. In John here, Jesus is presented as the, the true Israel. But the Son of God also refers to God's promises to David that one of his sons would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Nathaniel here was probably be referring to this messianic designation as the Son of God. But the title also describes Jesus as the eternal Son of God, 
who is in intimate relationship with the Father as the second person of the Trinity. Carson said this is an instance where really Nathaniel spoke better than he knew. <laughs> he didn't really know what he was saying. He was inspired by the Spirit to say these things. Well, the ninth thing here is Jesus is the King of Israel. Verse 49, you are the King of Israel. This is also a Messianic term. It relates to the Davidic covenant. And at this point, Nathaniel and the others who meet Jesus and proclaim him to be their Messiah and King, see, they have a political understanding of those terms. They're still thinking, yeah, this is the guy. He's going to march into Jerusalem and we're going to take over. They, they're having it in that kind of a, an understanding. They want to be freed from Roman rule. And they want to usher in the new Davidic age of peace and prosperity that was prophesied. They still need to learn that his kingdom is not of this world. See, they thought, hey, here's our king, and now we're going to take the world by storm. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to die. See, Nathaniel is acknowledging him to be his own king. By acknowledging Jesus as the King of Israel. And that's what we should do. Ask yourself the question Is Jesus King in your life? Or are you sitting on the throne of your life? Well, the tenth thing here Jesus is the only bridge between heaven and earth. Verse 51 Nathaniel says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see, Jesus says to Nathaniel, you will see the heavens opened up and the angels of God descending and descending on the Son of Man. In verse 50, the pronouns you are singular. But in verse 51, the pronoun you is plural. See, Jesus addresses this promise to his five disciples. And this is the first time that Jesus really uses this double affirmation. Truly, truly. This only occurs in the Gospel of John. And it points, it's kind of like saying, hey, heads up, heads up. You know, you're going to stop. And he goes, oh, they got something important to say. Well, Jesus here, when he's firstly saying this, these words, truly, truly, he's saying, I'm about ready to say something that's going to rock your world. I mean, Nathaniel probably had been meditating on Jacob's dream about the ladder and, and the heaven and the earth and the angels descending on it. But here, they ascend and descend on Jesus. He's the only way to the Father, is what he's saying. The only link between heaven and earth. And by seeing the heavens opened up, Jesus is promising his disciples that they will even have greater visions of divine truth. See, we can only know God the Father through what? Believing in Christ the Son. It's a very exclusive message. It's not all inclusive. The world wants us to think, oh, no, no, just be, be sincere in your faith. It doesn't matter whether you have faith in a, a microphone or faith in a God. It's, it's just all about sincerity. Well, no, it's not. And it's not good enough to have faith in anyone other than Christ. Because if that's the case, you are quickly on your way to an eternal punishment in hell. Because the only way that we can know God the Father is through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, 11th here, Jesus is the dwelling place of God with us. Verse 51, relating to this Jacob's dream after 
the dream Jacob declared in verse uh, 16 of, of uh, chapter 28 in Genesis. He says, sure, the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he adds, there is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So he names this place Bethel, the house of God. Jesus is the new dwelling place of God with men. Chapter 14, verse 23 tells us that. And we are, guess what? We are able to abide in him, in he in us. Chapter 15, verse 4. Well, the last point here, verse 51, Jesus is the coming son of man. This is the favorite way really, that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's used 12 times in this gospel, if you go through and count them. It's used 66 times in the synoptic gospels, the other gospels. This is the way Christ referred to himself. And the term comes right out of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees one like the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days, who gives to him an everlasting kingdom. And so Jesus here refers to these verses at his trial to testify to the high priest that he is coming again in power and in glory over in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. This may be here an allusion to that second coming. Some believe that. Leon Morris, in his commentary, he points out four reasons that Jesus adopted this term for himself. I'll just say them quickly. First, it was a rare term without nationalistic associations. See, people would, would not view him as a political messiah with that term. Secondly, it had overtones of divinity because of its connection to Daniel, just like I spoke about it. Thirdly, he adopted it because it implies the redeemed people of God. And then, fourthly, it has undertones of humanity. Morris says this, He took upon him our weakness. It was a way of alluding to and yet veiling his Messiahship, for his concept of the Messiah differed markedly from that commonly held. In the Gospel of John, the term is always associated either, either with Christ's heavenly glory or with the salvation he came to bring. See, all these, what we just spoke about, all this just piles up and piles up to describe Jesus is the only Savior that anyone needs. He's all-sufficient in every way. And because of that, I think it's important that we understand this is why we want to bring people to Christ. <laughs> Is it not? When we understand the truth about who Christ is, think of how horrible it would be if you had the cure for cancer and yet you were unwilling to share it with anyone. And you knew that what you possessed would completely heal people. Thousands upon thousands of people die every day, no doubt of a dreaded disease, and you hold the answer, you hold the key to life to them, and yet you keep it locked away in your medicine cabinet in your bathroom under lock and key. See, the gospel message does not change. It's always the same. It's always the same. 
When we begin to change the gospel message to kind of say, well, you know, we're going to change it for the culture. That's where we begin to go down the wrong trail. The gospel message is the same. And John means here that they followed Jesus literally, walking after him. They weren't just spouting verbiage. No, they were literally following Christ. See, there's no such thing as a truly believing in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and not being obedient to him in your personal life. Those are two opposing truths. You know, there's a philosophy, there's a belief out there that, oh, you can come to Jesus as your Savior, but you don't have to make him your Lord. You can go do whatever you want. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says either you come to him as Lord and Savior, or you don't come to him at all. It's so important that we understand that and that we are clear about that. See, John the Baptist didn't say, hey, wait a minute, guys, where are you going? <laughs> yeah, you can't leave me. I mean, I'm John the Baptist. No, you, we don't read anything of him. You know, he was content. He was doing his ministry. That's what God called him to do. And he let his disciples go after Jesus. See, the goal of every disciple maker is not that his disciples would follow him. That's not the purpose of being a disciple. But that they would follow Christ. You know, we, we don't... You know, I've met with men for many years, one-on-one, -on -one, and sometimes, you know, we meet and it's great, and then sometimes, you know, they just don't want to meet anymore. And somebody asked me one time, Does, doesn't that bother you, pastor? I was like, no, it doesn't. Why would it? I mean, I'm not, I'm not meeting with them because I have to meet with them <laughs> or my life falls apart. Why am I meeting with them? I'm meeting with them to bring them to Christ. I'm meeting with them to help them in the relationship with Christ. And by the way, they help me with my relationship with Christ. We grow together in our relationship with Christ. So when it doesn't happen anymore, I don't go home and cry myself to sleep. Nobody likes me. Nobody wants to meet with me. No. That's not the point. Because the goal is that they would follow Christ. See, there's no indication here that these men followed Jesus the first time when John declared him to be the Lamb of God. But the second time, eventually the message hit home. You know what? Studies have shown us that it takes sometimes up to seven times for a person to hear the gospel before they believe it, before they're saved. Think about it. That's seven times. That's just an average. So some people may hear it the first time and get saved. That's very odd. And other people, it may take 20 times. We don't know. That's not our call. That's God's call. So what's the point? The point is we keep on telling people about Christ. We don't get tired. We don't grow weary. We tell people about Jesus. Even if they've heard about Jesus, we tell people about Jesus. You may or may not see the person respond. I, I often think of a couple that came to our church for, for years, Paula and Steve. And Paula became a believer, 
and that was glorious transformation. And then her husband started coming, unbelieving husband, and he came here for years. Came to the men's group, came to everything, but he wanted to believe her. And guess what? They, the Lord moved him out of here, and they moved down to Cambria. It was probably two or three weeks. They're attending another church, and he comes to Christ. And I'm going, whoa, wait a minute, God. You know, that's not fair. Right? I mean, that's how we think sometimes. And God's saying, look, it's not about you, pal. It's not about your little church there in Redwood City. It's about my glory. It's about my plan, my purpose. See, it's by exalting Christ that people are drawn to him. If we exalt Christ in our lives, people will be drawn to him. John proclaimed Jesus to be the Lamb of God, and that resonated somehow with Andrew and John, who felt the need for a Savior from their sins. And Andrew told Peter they found the Messiah. That intrigued Peter enough to go see him. Philip extolled Jesus to, to, to uh, Nathaniel as the one of whom the prophets and Moses spoke of. And even though Nathaniel was skeptical at first, I think Philip's gentle invitation, hey, you know what? Don't believe me. Just what? Come and see. Come and see. This is what we, we need to understand. Then Jesus called Philip directly with authority and said, you follow me. We don't know really what Philip knew about Jesus before this. But something, there was something about Jesus' manner and his command, and it drew Philip after him. See, you never know how God may use your witness, beloved. You never know. Andrew's witness brought Peter to Christ. Guess what? Andrew never preached to large crowds, as far as Scripture is concerned. But his one-on-one witness to Peter led thousands to coming to Christ. I think it's important that we realize that sometimes God can use anyone he wants to bring about his purpose. Not many people would know the name of Edward Kimball. He was a Sunday school teacher who led one of his pupils by the way, whose name was D.L. Moody, <laughs> to Christ. Kimball was, personality was very timid, very soft-spoken man, but he decided one day that he needed to speak with Moody. Moody was a 19-year-old shoe salesman, and he needed to talk to him about his soul. And Moody was untaught, he was ignorant about the Bible at this point, And when Kimball got near the store where Moody worked as a shoe salesman, he he just became overwhelmed with fear and he almost chickened out. But finally he went in and began a conversation. He began to stumble over his words. And he said later that he could not even remember what exactly he said. He was so terrified. He said something about Christ and his love. That's all he could recall. He admitted that he was very weak in his appeal for Moody to come to Christ. But guess what? Moody gave his heart to Christ right then and there. And later, God used Moody mightily to lead thousands to Christ in America, throughout England. His impact continues today, even through the Moody Bible Institute, where thousands of Christian workers are trained 
It's, it's amazing to me. We don't often see that end game. The point is, Jesus didn't launch his kingdom through a mass mailing or by preaching to, to large crowds at an evangelistic campaign. There was no corporate headquarters. There was no organizational structure. There was no gospel blimp. <laughs> it began quietly with two of John the Baptist's disciples. Andrew told his brother. John also later told his brother James, Philip told Nathaniel. All of them recognized Jesus the Savior, and that's what they needed. And that excitement began to spill over. That's how the Lord wants to spread the news of the gospel. If you're excited about Jesus, then tell your family, your friends about him. Make a list of 8 to 12 people you can pray for diligently, that you can contact about knowing the Lord. Begin to pray for opportunities to talk to people about Christ. Talk to Michael about going out and sharing the gospel on the streets if you're called to do that. Because everyone, everyone, beloved, is a sinner who is alienated from God. And think about it. Jesus is our all-sufficient Savior. He's the only Savior who can bridge that chasm between us and God. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would remind us of your grace in our lives that, Lord, we're not saved because of who we are. We're not saved because of talents or gifts that we may possess. We're saved because of your grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask this morning if there's any who are listening to this message now, even through the live stream or now here personally, or eventually on the radio, Father, we pray that if they don't know Christ, if they don't know you, Lord, as their Lord and Savior, I, I pray that today might be the day they, they meet you, just like these men met you. And Father, we pray that they would feel the burden of their sin in their own soul. And they would desire to be freed from that. That they would desire to be secure for all eternity. Death comes unexpectedly when it comes generally. But we're all appointed a day. We're all appointed a time. We don't know when that time's coming. And so we need to be ready when we are too ushered into eternity. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that if there's any who have not put their faith or trust in Christ, today might be the day they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I want to put and live, I put my trust in you and live for you all the rest of my days here on this earth. If that's a prayer that God is leading you to pray, then he will answer it if it comes from a sincere heart. We don't come to Jesus because we need stuff from Jesus. That's not why we come to Christ. We come to Christ because he's the only one we can come to. He's the only one that can meet our need. He's the only one that can forgive us of our sin. And I pray that as believers we would understand that and that we would not hoard the gospel to ourselves this coming year in 2024, but we would spread it boldly and loudly to those around us in our families, our friends, our workplaces. Father, we pray that next year at this time that we would look back and say, wow, look at what you've done, Lord. Look at what you've done. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.